just heard Patricia speak and just wanted to get a reaction. And just hearing it coming from, from somebody that's been through so much in life, uh, it's very powerful. It's a true testament that God's mercy is extremely powerful, that there's nothing impossible uh, for Him. And uh, it's just tremendous just hearing her talk and speak about it and be able to share her story. Was there anything in particular that really stood out to you the most, something very specific from her talk? Uh, to be honest, everything. Everything stood out uh, a lot. There's nothing just specific. It's just everything. Uh, towards the end when she talked about, you know, just, just she has nothing left. She hit bare bottom, and uh, she speaks to God and talks to God. And, and, you know, just him opening his arms up and saying, you know what, I forgive you. You, you can come to me. I'm here for you. Uh, was extremely powerful. You just heard Patricia Sandoval speak. What were your first initial reactions to her testimony? Oh my goodness, um, my heart was pounding the entire time. Um, my heart was also aching and it was just, it was so powerful and it was so moving. And like, I've never experienced what she's experienced, but for her courage and the grace of God that was given for her to come up to all of these people and probably all the other millions of people she's talked to, to say that story is just so moving. And it makes me just realize that I, as a woman, I am called to stand for pro-life and to stand for the unborn because they don't have a voice. Those are children that a lot of people don't realize that it's, they're human. My biggest message that I'd like to bring back to my parish is one of love and what is, how, how can I best show love even when it's hard to the people around me. What about uh, the Transfigured book? It was an amazing story, uplifting, um, encouraging, and uh, just as a mother of three, that gave me a lot of hope about, you know, um, Transfigure and God being relentless to, to change someone. And as a mother, that our prayers are never in vain. Okay, very cool. It's so important for us to participate and be pro-life and to let everyone know that it's very important. Right, we have Full of Grace, right, which is all about miracles and conversion stories of Our Lady Magigore, and transfigured the book about Patricia Sandoval's conversion and her, her time through a hellish life um, and how she found God's redemption. Our next speaker, Patricia Sandoval, we are blessed to have with us. She is the subject of her autobiographical book called Transfigured, which is the story of her escape from drugs, homelessness, and the back door of Planned Parenthood. Catholic speaker Jesse Romero calls her the modern-day St. Mary Magdalene. She is a full-time international pro-life speaker speaking on chastity, God's mercy, his healing, and his gift of life. Please welcome Patricia Sandoval. Thank you so much. I would love to start with a prayer to our Blessed Mother since my life is dedicated to her and this pro-life ministry is dedicated to her. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Blessed Mother, I ask that you give us that peace that comes from your Son, peace in our hearts, and that we can hear the voice of the Holy Spirit and the message that he wants to gift us today. Saint Jose Sanchez de Rio, Pray for us. I'm here because of God's mercy and God's great love. And I'm really here also because of my mother's prayers. God has forgiven me so much throughout my life. And I'm here also to repair all the damage that I've done. My story is 
a very hard story to tell. It's not easy. It's still a little bit hurtful, but I do it because I love the Lord. And the Bible says, our Lord says, that there's no greater love than to give your life for a friend. The unborn do not have many friends. They actually have many enemies. And I decided years ago to be their friend and to be their voice, and that's why I'm here. I'm here to be their voice, no matter how heavy the cross is and how shameful the story is and how hurtful it is for my own family to hear that I publicly speak this, I decided to be their friend. My story begins when I was a child and in my family, I felt very loved. I felt united with my family and I was baptized in the Catholic faith. I did my first communion. And I remember when I was very young, I used to go into my backyard and I used to write love letters to God the Father. And I used to roll them up tie them on balloons, and I used to send them up to heaven, and I used to speak to God, and I used to look up at the sky, and I felt like I had a relationship with them. But as the years went by, my mother started getting involved in the New Age practices. My mom actually started reading people's palms. We had good luck charms all over the house, and then eventually my sister and I would start playing the Ouija board every single day. So in my household, Jesus was not the king anymore but we actually had Satan living in our household and we were just ignorant. We didn't know that we had Satan there. We, um, we got into pretty heavy stuff. My mom would teach us how to line up our chakras and awaken the serpent inside of us when I was about 10 years old. We would go to big convention centers where they would hypnotize everybody in the crowds. We would go to fairs, like basically big events where there would be witches at every um, table and some would read your past lives. And I was like 10, 11 years old and these were the type of things that we were involved with. And eventually the family um, just started falling apart and my parents divorced. But when I was 12 years old, I remember that Planned Parenthood came into my school. I asked my mother, I said, Mom, is it okay if you sign this permission slip because we're gonna have a course on sexuality and Pam Planhart is coming to my school tomorrow and she thought it was great. In the Mexican culture, I was born in California and my parents are from Mexico. It's kind of like a taboo to talk about sex, kind of like a no-no, it's kind of like a sin, very shameful. So my mom thought it was amazing that these people that are educated, educators, were coming into our classroom and teaching us about sex and we're 12 years old. And I remember that morning when we got into class on our, on our desk, there were bananas and condoms. And they said, okay, kids, 90% of people do not know how to apply a condom properly. So we're going to show you guys how to properly apply a, a condom on these bananas. And I'd never thought of the man's genital parts. I've never even thought about sex. And they started teaching us all these things and they talked about birth control. Okay, birth control prevents STDs and birth control prevents pregnancies. And they made, it, made safe sex sound like it was amazing, like it protected you, like it was the solution. And they talked about protecting your genital area, but they never talked about protecting your heart. They never talked about love or purity. I didn't even know what purity was. I didn't know that my virginity was a treasure. I didn't hear from it from my parents. I didn't know that I was supposed to wait until I arrived at the altar. I had no idea about these things. 
And I remember that they talked about masturbation and they said, you know, children, we actually recommend masturbation because it's healthy, it takes away anxiety, it gives you emotional balance, and we prefer that you guys ma start masturbating now because we don't want you guys to have sex with different types of partners, you know, get an STD or something. We prefer that you guys start masturbating, and they perverted our minds. But I thought that this was truth. I thought that they were, they were teaching, their teachings was truth. And I remember when I walked out of that course, I thought, wow, okay, so the day that I lose my virginity, the only thing I have to practice is safe sex, and this is, I've got it made. This is, sounds so easy. And things were really bad at home. My parents divorced, and my mother moved to Mexico, and I stayed with my father in the US, in California. But I was very angry at my mom. I felt like my mom abandoned us, and I couldn't believe that my mom left. So I became very angry, and I became very rebellious. So I was a partier. I was a worldly girl. The only thing I cared about in my heart was to look good, to have nice clothes, to be very successful and to make a lot of money and just to drink on weekends with my friends. And those were my values and that's what I had in my heart. Every weekend I partied and partied with girlfriends and, and my father was just kind of out of it. My dad suffered the, the divorce terribly and I was angry and I had no discipline. I'd come home at five, six in the morning. Sometimes I wouldn't come home. And I developed a horrible addiction called trichotillomania, which is a hair-pulling disease because of the pain of not having my mother with me. And I still suffer from it sometimes. I pull my hair out. And when I was 19 years old, I walked into a nightclub and I saw this man that was 25 years old. And I thought, that, that's, he's mine. That's mine. And we started dating. He's a little bit older, and I really love this guy. And I remember my friends told me, they said, Patricia, okay, this guy's 25 years old. He's already had sex, and you're still a, you're still a virgin. You're 19 years old. You're, you're, you're kind of old. You're the only one out of the clique, out of our friends that haven't had sex. You know, if you really love him, I think you should give yourself to him. And that's what I thought love was about. I thought that when you really love somebody, you gave your body, you gave your whole self. I didn't know that I would end up with a broken heart. I didn't know that I was supposed to wait for true love. I didn't know that it was sacred and holy, that it was meant for marriage. I had no idea because I didn't know who God was. So when my boyfriend and I started having sex, we practiced safe sex with a condom. Six months into it, we had a little accident. And one day I felt very nauseous and I took a pregnancy test at home and one of my cousins was, was with me. And when I saw that test, positive, fear entered my heart. And I said, oh my gosh, my dreams, my goals, I wanted to travel, I'm a straight A student, I have the best grades in school. This is not success. Everything's gone, my life is done. And then I thought of my father, my dad, you know, he's gonna kick me out of my house. And then, you know, being, coming from a Mexican family, all the gossip in Mexico, it's gonna be horrible. And I was so scared. And when I called my boyfriend that evening, he said, I'm so happy. I'm going to protect you. Don't worry. I am with you. We will get through this. And as a woman, to hear a man say, I will protect you. I am with you. Do not worry. I, I'm supporting you. 
wow, those words are so powerful to save a life because men were created for greatness. And they were created to be the head. And they were created to protect the woman and protect life. And I felt so loved. And all that fear came out of my heart. And I was so happy. And I remember the days would roll by and my stomach started kind of stretching. And I would grab my womb and sing to my womb. And I remember that at nighttime I'd sing lullabies and I felt like I was protecting this life that was growing inside of me. And when I was two months pregnant, we went to our uh, first appointment with our doctor together for the first ultrasound. And I remember on that screen, I saw a head. I saw arms that were, were moving and I saw heartbeat. I saw this heart just pounding out of the chest and I heard the heartbeat and I saw life forming. And I was so happy, and my boyfriend was crying of joy. But four months into my pregnancy, my friends came over, and they never told me, Patricia, you know, this was a mistake, you're not ready to be a mom, but hey, we're your friends, we'll support you. You know, we're with you. What they said to me was, Patricia, what are you doing? This is the worst mistake. You're not ready to be a mom. You have such good grades. You have big things that are going for you in life. Don't make this mistake, please. It's not a baby yet. It's not formed until, you know, you're four months. You have time to have an abortion before it becomes a baby. Please listen to us. And somehow, don't ask me, in my mind, I thought, wait, they're right. It's not formed yet. I have time. What am I doing? That fear came inside again. And I believe that the root of all abortion is fear. It's fear. And I thought, okay, wait, but I can't. What am I doing? And they said, you know, just make an appointment and, and, and just have an abortion and start all over. Just start all over. And I said, okay, no, they're right. I'm going to go get an abortion. But I can't tell my boyfriend the truth. You know, he's, he's, he's Mexican. In Mexico, they don't have abortions. They don't believe in that. That's what I thought. And I'm just going to tell him I had a miscarriage. And then this nightmare, it turned into a nightmare. It's going to be over. As soon as I decided to have an abortion, I disconnected that relationship from my womb. I stopped singing, I stopped hugging my womb. It was like this, it was dead. It was now considered a problem. And I made an ap appointment at a clinic in Santa Rosa, California. And I remember when I got out of my vehicle, I walked out and there was this just shadow of shame that covered me. I felt so much shame. And that's what most women feel when they're about to walk into a clinic where they're about to have an abortion. And I thought to myself, Oh my goodness, I never thought that I would get pregnant. And I never thought that I would have an abortion. And I remember thinking to myself, oh my gosh, I hope nobody, nobody sees me in this parking lot. I hope nobody sees me in the lobby. You know, I, I was so embarrassed and I remember looking down. And when I walked into that lobby, I thought, I'm not gonna look at anybody in the eyes. I don't wanna see anybody, I know, and I'm just gonna walk straight in. And I remember when I walked into that lobby, I couldn't but notice a bunch of converse and sneakers, like teenagers. And when I looked up at these youngsters, there were 13, 14, 15-year-old children. There's about 20 to 25 children in there. They had their appointments to have an abortion that day. I thought, oh my goodness, what are they doing here? They're so little. And I looked into their eyes, and there were girls that were crying, and some girls were alone. And some of them had their like 14 year old boyfriends with them. And I remember one boy had this look on his face. He was terrified. 
He didn't know what he was getting himself. He didn't, they didn't know what abortion was. And I thought, wait, I'm 19 years old. I'm an adult. These are children. Unfortunately, in our state, these kids, a 13-year-old girl can go in and have an abortion without the parent's consent. But today, if you, go to, if you go to CVS and you try to get, I don't know, a Tylenol and you're 20 years old, you can't. You have to show an ID. You have to be 21 years old to buy something for a headache. But you can go get an abortion when you're 13 years old. And that's how Satan works. And I walked up to the receptionist and I said, hi, I'm Patricia, so I want to have an apartment for my abortion. She goes, okay, well, do you, do you want your abortion here or do you want to have it in the comfort of your own home? And I thought, well, what's that? She said, well, there's a pill called the RU486 where you are having an abortion basically for 48 hours and you bore it in, your, in the comfort of your own bathroom. I'm like, no, 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 I don't want to have an abortion in my home. I just want to have it here and I just want to forget this and I never want to think about this again. I want to go home. Okay, she goes, well, we're going to put you, you, know, we're going to put you in the room now. So they put me inside the exam room. And I remember they put me on the exam table and I was shaking because they don't give you pre-instructions. They don't tell you what you're gonna go through until you get there. So I was sitting on the exam table and the doctor walks in. And I remember she was a beautiful lady, you know, very sophisticated. And I was shaking and she said, oh my goodness, Patricia, you're shaking? No, 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 don't get nervous. Look, this takes five minutes. And I've had an abortion myself. And last year I performed two abortions on my daughter. My daughter's okay, I'm okay, and you're gonna be okay, it's just five minutes. So I thought, oh, okay, well, she looks good, and her daughter's okay, and I work in the medical field. You know, she, uh, doctors don't lie because they want the best for their patients, so I trust her, I trust, you trust your doctor, right? So five minutes, I can tolerate five minutes, it's fine. And I remember when I laid on that exam table, I thought, okay, I decided to come here. I'm not gonna cry. There's no drama, so I'm going to block my mind. I'm going to block my. I'm, blo I'm going to block myself. This is not going to traumatize me. And so I remember I made myself get stiff like this, so I can actually survive the, the, the abortion. The only thing I remember was the vacuum sound, and something being sucked out of my womb, and I felt this big emptiness inside of me. But at the same time, I thought, oh, okay, I don't have this problem anymore. Okay, this I feel empty, but I don't have this problem. And when I walked out of that clinic, they said, okay, Patricia, the only thing that you're gonna feel after this abortion is maybe some cramping. No big deal, you can start your work tomorrow. That's the only post instructions that they give you at these clinics. They never talk about post-abortion syndrome. They never told me the hellish nightmare that I was gonna live after this abortion. And they gave me a big bag of condoms so I could keep on practicing safe sex. And now a bunch of birth control pills that I'm supposed to take at the same time every day. And when I get home that evening, I call the boyfriend and I say, um, my heart was, I didn't even cry. My heart was kind of like cold. Like, and I said, uh, guess what? I didn't feel good this morning. I went to the doctor and I had a miscarriage. And there was like this silence on the phone. And all of a sudden I hear him weep and weep and weep. And when I heard him weep, affected by a miscarriage, and I knew I had an abortion, and I didn't even cry the abortion, I felt so guilty. I felt so guilty. And I said, don't cry. It was, it was a pregnancy. It was nothing. Um, it, it was nothing. It was just a sack of tissue. That's what they told me at the clinic. They told me it was no big deal. It was nothing. So stop crying. I felt so guilty. But after that, things were getting worse. 
I started having nightmares of babies crying. I started yanking my hair out more. My self-esteem was horrible. I would look at myself in the mirror and I'd go, oh my God, I, I, I look really ugly, I look really fat. And I used to be very vain. I thought I was all that in a bag of chips. I, I was like, wow, I look good today. It was, I, that was my personality, I was super vain. And then I, I, just, I just started seeing myself very, very distorted. And I started getting a lot of anxiety. And my boyfriend's like, what's wrong with you? Like, you're very irritable, you're always mad, and then, you, then you, you're always crying. Your emotional state is really, like, off track. And then he started getting super depressed. And he would tell me, you know what, Patricia, I'm having these horrible nightmares of a little girl calling, saying, daddy, daddy. And then I, I start feeling guilty. And, I, and I, it, it was not a baby, it was a pregnancy. He was suffering post-abortion syndrome, and he didn't even know he had an abortion. We always think that abortion has to do with the woman. No, it takes two to tango. It takes two for a pregnancy. So when a woman has an abortion, so does the man, even though if he, if he knows it or not. Women suffer post-abortion syndrome and so does the man. So we're both suffering post-abortion syndrome. We're both like starting to suffer. But I said, okay, the condom didn't work. I'm gonna start taking um, birth control pills. So I take my little pill at the same time every day and all of a sudden, six months later, I started feeling nauseous again. I didn't feel good. I thought, oh no, what, what's going on? So I took another pregnancy test, positive right away. I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, how? If I'm being responsible, I'm practicing safe sex. How did it, how is safe sex feeling twice? I'm taking my pill every day at the same time. I thought, okay, it's only a month into it. It's literally nothing, it's a sack of tissue. There's no need to tell the boyfriend for what? I, 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 there's no need to tell anybody. I felt the shame again. How am I gonna tell my friends? I just had an abortion six months prior, and plus, you know what? After the first abortion, my friends really never called me anyways. They kind of left my life. And I thought, okay, I did it once. This is gonna be easier. I can do it again. And this time, I went to Planned Parenthood. I thought, wait, I can't go to the same clinic. I just had an abortion. They told me to practice safe sex. They're gonna think I'm really irresponsible. And when I went to Planned Parenthood for the second time, the only thing I remember is sitting on the exam table, going, okay, I'm gonna block myself again. Uh, I'm gonna do this again, this is gonna be easy. And when I heard the vacuum sound, I started hearing someone applaud me like this. And I opened my eyes and the doctor started applauding me. She said, wow, Patricia, this is amazing. You are the best patient I've ever had during an abortion. You're like the first woman that's not even crying. You're not even kicking, your legs aren't even moving. You're making my job easy. A lot of women faint and they make drama. You are the number one like brave woman that I've ever seen during an abortion. You are so courageous and I congratulate you because you're doing the best thing and the best choice for your life. And I, I mean, this sounds sick, but a lot of humans, we like, I was a people, I love to please people. And I like to hear this from the world. I like, you know, I, it really mattered to me what the world thought of me. And I felt like brave. I thought, wow, okay, I'm like the best um, patient during an abortion. So when I went into the recovery room in Planned Parenthood that looked like a spa, I sat in this like massage chair and they put these slippers on me, these fluffy slippers and this fluffy robe. And the nurse came in and she gave me this like neck massage. She said, wow, Patricia, you did an amazing job, I heard, during your abortion here's some cookies and some tea, and they just pamper you up. And when I walked out, I walked out again with another bag of free condoms, 
free birth control pills so I can continue practicing safe sex that failed twice. And then things got worse. I wanted to kill myself. I, I, I felt so empty inside. I, I thought, wait, okay, what's the point of life? I felt like there's, there, there was misery. I couldn't stand looking at myself. My boyfriend would try to hold my hand and it would gross me out. I didn't want anybody to see me with him in public. And he's like, what's wrong, Patricia? You don't love me anymore, huh? And what's going on with you? And you're changing, you're not the same girl. You were always happy, you were always laughing. That party girl that liked to go dancing and made jokes. You're always crying, you're depressed, you're, you're anxious. And then I started getting very anorexic. I just thought I was tremendously overweight and I wouldn't eat, and I, was, I just looked at myself so distorted, and I was living a nightmare. There was a time that night where I just felt like walking into my kitchen and grabbing a knife and just stabbing myself. I didn't know why I felt this way. And he started feeling horrible. And for some reason, I thought, okay, if, if, if I leave my boyfriend, then nobody will love me. <laughs> then, you know, I don't want to leave him. I feel bad. And I just kept practicing, you know, safe sex, but I, it was miserable. And I thought that that's, I was supposed to do that because we were girlfriend and boyfriend, and it's just normal that you know boyfriend and girlfriends have sex. And for the third time, I got pregnant, six months after the second abortion. And what happens is planned, that's Planned Parenthood's trap. They need more abortions, more abortions. So they give these youth the worst contraceptives with the, like the low-dose concentration and the worst condoms because they know it's going to fail and they know that these kids will keep having sex and they're going to keep coming in to have abortions and I fell into that trap. So I got pregnant for the third time and I was so furious. I thought, what is going on? Three pregnancies, a year and a half? I'm taking my pill and I didn't want to feel guilty anymore. I said, I'm going to tell him the truth and I'm going to force him to go with me to this abortion because I don't want to be the only bad person in this movie, right? So I call him and I said, guess what? And he said, what? I said, I'm pregnant again. And he started getting happy. Oh, I want to be a father, Patricia. You know, I, I'm so happy. I said, no, 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 mm -mm. It's not the time. No, no, you're not going to be a father. I'm not going to be a mother. I don't want to be pregnant. I'm going to go get an abortion. And when he told me, but I don't want to have an abortion. Oh, it's like this lion came out inside of me. And I said, it is my body and my choice. You have nothing to do with the choices I make over my body. I don't care what you think. And you know what? You're a selfish person because I'm going to lose my family. I'm going to lose my job and my career, my dreams and my goal. Your parents won't stop talking to you. You're a guy. I'm going to lose everything. My life is going to end. Don't you care about me? It's, it was all about me. I said, if you want to come with me or not, I don't care. I'm going to go have an abortion tomorrow morning. And I think he was scared that I was going to leave him because he really loved me a lot. So he went with me to, to this abortion. And what I remember is laying on that exam table and they turned on that vacuum sound. And I felt his hand squeeze me so hard. And when I opened my eyes to look at his reaction, his lip was jumping because he was so frightened. And I looked into his eyes, and it was terror in his eyes. And during that abortion, the only thing that I could feel were the tears 
that were his tears dropping down my face and just running down my neck because he was so affected by this abortion. He was crying in pain. He didn't want to. I took the right away from him to become a father. Unfortunately, the unborn do not have a voice. But men today do not have a voice over their fatherhood and over their children. Men don't have a voice as well. Women take that away from them. And I did that to him. I took that right away from him. And when I left that clinic, I knew I was going to leave him. Things were just horrible. And I waited about a week or two, and I left him, and he was, he was, he was so heartbroken. And I felt so miserable. I thought, I need to move out of this city. I need to start all over again. I need to forget the abortions and forget the boyfriend and everything. I need to start all over again. I tried to run from my problems. And that's when I moved to Sacramento, here nearby, Sacramento, California. And I had my own apartment, and I needed a job. And back then, when you look for a job, you, look, you grab the newspaper, right? So I saw an ad in the newspaper, Planned Parenthood is desperately seeking a bilingual medical assistant. I went to this interview. I didn't have any medical assistant experience at all. The only thing I knew how to do in a medical office was answer phones. And when I went to this interview, they gave me the job with no experience. They wanted somebody desperately that spoke Spanish. The first day I went in there, I was hired on the spot. The pay was so high that I was, it was almost double that what, what I was earning in, in Sonoma County. And when I went in there, I remember the manager took me into her office and she said, okay, Patricia, we do 50 abortions. And this, I'm talking about 1999. 50 abortions a week. We do 25 on Wednesdays and 25 on Fridays. 90% of the women are Hispanic, non-speaking English women. I thought, wait, what do you mean? Yeah, it's mostly non-speaking English women, 90%. I go, wait a minute, but they don't have abortions in, in Latin America and Mexico. We don't, like, Mexicans don't do that. You know, that, that's where my, and she said, no, of course they do. It's, it's the, the women that most abort in California are Hispanic women. And I was shocked. She said, that's why we desperately need somebody like you. Are you, are you so you're very pro-choice. I said, oh, yeah. Actually, I've had three abortions myself. I, I believe the woman, woman can do whatever she wants with her body. Oh, that's awesome because those three abortions are going to help us encourage women to have abortions. So today you're going to counsel these 50 women to come in because they're going to come in on Wednesday and Friday. And if they don't come in for their abortions, you can actually lose your job. There is no other solution here but abortion. So you're going to do everything in your will that they never miss their appointment. Another thing, you cannot bring um, photographs of your family, of your nephews and nieces and cousins here because if a woman walks in and she sees a photograph of a family, she might freak out and walk out, and that's going to be your fault. You never look at a woman in the eyes. You can't have a relationship with a patient because the woman walks in and she's crying and she's really scared. So she's waiting for somebody to say, are you okay? Um, are you scared? You know, there's other solutions. You don't have to have an abortion. There's other options. 
No, there's no other options. It's abortion. And I was a little confused. And she said, you can't use the word baby, he, she, mother, or father. It, sack of tissue. You can't even use the word fetus in this, in this place. I was still a little confused. And I remember all day, 50 women I canceled, mostly in Spanish. Every single woman, the same thing, like a broken record over and over. Patricia, my baby's gonna feel it, right? It's gonna hurt my baby. And they, it's like, it's like kind of like in the pit of your soul, you, they knew it was a baby somehow. And I said, of course, of course it's not a baby. It's not gonna hurt, it's not a baby. It's not gonna hurt it because it's a sack of tissue. It's not gonna hurt a sack of tissue. It's, it's, not, it's not even a baby. And I would say that, and I really, I really believe that. And I actually thought I was helping these women and these young girls, a lot of 13, 14-year-old girls. And I would tell these girls, you're 13 years old. What are you going to do with a baby? You're going to ruin your life, and you're going to ruin that baby's life. This is the best choice you can make. And I actually thought I was doing an act of charity, doing something great for the youth. Because I thought Planned Parenthood were heroes. I thought they were always there for me. They always gave me free contraceptive. They always called my house and never said it was them. They lied to my dad. They always, eat, like, they always mailed me my results and they never put their Planned Parenthood stamp on it. They always put a fake name. I thought they were woohoo for me. And I wanted to help. Then Wednesday came along. And when I walked in, I remember, the manager was like a crazy woman looking for me. Like, where's Patricia? Where's Patricia? Before the day started. She grabs my hand. She was the rudest lady I've ever seen in my life. She puts me into her office and she closes the door. She goes, okay, so today is the day. We have a doctor from, not from this office. He's an abortionist that just jumps around the country in abortion clinics. Because you know why? Because if a woman has a complication, after her abortion and tries to sue us, the doctor's not from our clinic. We don't have problems. So he just kind of jumped around. And today you're gonna to assist him and you're gonna assist the women and the young girls that have the abortions. So the abortions can only last five minutes. So you're literally gonna be jumping from one room to the next room to the next room to the next room. Because if we waste any more time than five minutes, we lose money. Do you, do you understand? And I said, yes. And she said, okay. So the most important thing here is that when we do the ultrasounds before their abortions, you never, ever let the woman see the screen. If she wants to see that ultrasound, that screen has to face the doctor, never the patient. I don't care if she cries, I don't care if she's screaming, never sees that ultrasound. And after each abortion, you never tell the mother mother or the father that's in the waiting room that after their abortion we throw their babies away in the garbage and when she said those words she said it so bluntly without heart I felt something pierce my like my heart like my heart I felt something awful but I didn't want to say anything I wanted to act strong I wanted to act like it didn't affect me because I was so pro-choice and I had had three abortions and I remember the first young girl she was about 15 years old, she walked in. And I remember this young girl started to faint in my arms and she was sweating, but I didn't want to look at her eyes. And I thought, oh my gosh, this girl's fainting? She's such a coward. She's fainting over a sack of tissue? 
and I thought, mm, I was a brave person. I didn't act like this. I wasn't, you know, I didn't do any drama. And I just, I was kind of irritated with her. And I remember I put her on the exam table and then the doctor walks in and I remember he didn't even say hi to her. He didn't say anything. He was a rude man. He was a very tall, strong, rude doctor. And he walked in and he said, Patricia, we're starting the abortion. So I need you next to me. And I remember he took out all the instruments. And when I saw the instruments, I, don't, I walked myself out during my, my abortions. I didn't want to see anything. And I saw all these instruments that were sharp. And I thought, oh my goodness. And I'm just going to warn everybody. <laughs> this part's a little strong. But it's, it's very necessary to hear this. A lot of people don't tolerate it. But I ask you, for the sake of the unborn, and for the sake of these martyrs, that we listen to, to their martyrdom. It's so necessary because this is happening to our generation. This is happening now. And it's even worse now than back in 1999. So I remember he took out this needle, the anesthesia, it was this long. It was like the size of my, from my elbow to, the, to my middle finger, it was very long. And he said, all right, Patricia, this is the anesthesia, so I'm gonna inject her inside of her womb seven times because we're gonna, we're gonna make, the, we're gonna, you know, so, what is it, make the womb numb. So he's injected her seven times inside of the womb. And I, I remember standing there going, oh my goodness, this looks, this is horrible, this looks horrifying. And he injected her seven times. Then he turned on the vacuum machine, the abortion machine, 28 times stronger than a regular vacuum that you use at home. It's, it's, it's very powerful. And he takes out the cannula, which is the tip of that machine, and the tip-tip of it is like a sharp knife. And he goes inside of this 15-year-old womb. And when I'm standing behind his shoulder, she starts screaming like crazy, my baby, my baby, and her legs are flying. And he's got this sharp object as she's kicking in the air inside of her womb going like this for five minutes. That point, I thought to myself, wait a minute. He can't see inside of her womb and she's kicking, and he's got a knife inside of her womb, and this is a blind man's surgery. And I say this all the time, it's, it's just as if you're about to have heart surgery, and the doctor says, hi, I'm gonna perform heart surgery on you this morning, but let me just turn off the lights, I'll grab my knife, and I'll just put um, a handkerchief around my eyes, and I'll perform your surgery. That's abortion. That's what happens. And I thought that to myself as I was standing behind the doctor and I said, how does he know he's getting everything out, all the cells out? How does he know he's not hurting her ovaries? Or, you know, how, how does he know what he's doing inside? It actually looked so violent, it looked like he was raping her. But it is a form of rape. It is violent. So when he looked at the clock, he said, okay, it's five minutes. And there's this cylinder attached to the machine with an, some a, amount of blood that he took out of her womb. He said, okay, I think we have enough blood out. I think we have enough blood. Okay, it's five minutes. I think I'm done. I think. You got it? It's a guessing, it's a guessing game. I think. So he turns the machine off and he says, Patricia, grab the bag from the machine. So he opens the cylinder and all the content, like everything just dumps into that bag. 
and I grabbed that bag, and there was a nurse waiting for me at the door, and the nurse said, come with me. So she takes me down the halls of Planned Parenthood and puts me inside of this little room, and she said, close the door now. And I said, why? And she said, because the bathroom is right there, which it shouldn't be, we're gonna change that. that. The bathroom is right there, and if that young girl gets up, and if she goes to the bathroom and she sees what we're about to see right now, then we're in big problem. We have big problems here. So after every abortion, this door, this door's closed. So we close the door, and there's this huge petri dish. And she said, "I want you to dump that bag into the petri dish." And I thought, oh, okay, we're gonna look for this bag of cells, right? That's what we're gonna look for right now. Because I just counseled this girl two days ago, and I told her it was a sack of tissue. When I empty this bag out. The smell of death was so strong, it affected me. And I look at her, and I thought, okay, I'm about to faint. Is she, is, she, is she about to faint? And I look at her, zombie, robot. These people working in the clinics are affected by abortion. And Planned Parenthood hires young kids. So these young kids are paid well, so they would actually sort of stay at these places to work. But everybody is zombie, robotic-like. That's what I noticed. And all of a sudden, she takes out forceps, like they're like little tweezers, and she starts digging into this petri dish. And all of a sudden, to my surprise, she takes out a little arm with a hand like this. And she said, this is part number one. And it, it was as if time stopped. Time stopped. And I can contemplate that hand. And the first thing I noticed were the fingerprints on that, those little fingers. And I thought, fingerprints, fingerprints, they identify us as unique, authentic human beings. There's nobody else like you in this world. And then I started seeing the little lines on the palm, and when she turned that little hand around, the fingernails were formed. And this girl was three months pregnant, and she threw it in the garbage. And then she dug around again. And then she lifted up to the light, a leg. And when I saw that little foot, it had the little prints on the bottom, the little toenails. And what really hit me, what hit home, were that, that the skin had little hairs growing on it. And she said, this is part number two. She found the second arm, the second leg. But what really pierced my heart was the head. It had hair, eyebrows, nose, eyes, ears. I even saw a little lash coming out, lashes. But the mouth was open as if this baby tried to fight for his life. It tried to scream, but nobody can hear him because he did not have a voice and he couldn't save himself, and he didn't make it. And it was from his own mother and her own womb. And that's where I saw my reality, and I said, wait, I didn't abort three sack of tissues. I aborted three of my own children. And it hurt, but I was such a coward, and I, I tried to act strong because I was pro-choice, and I didn't say anything. And the whole day in that clinic, it was a holocaust. It was me jumping from one room to the next, the next, to the next. The vacuum sound all day, all day, abortion. It was a human factory of human beings being killed.
the girl would go in, she'd have an abortion. Head, arms, feet in the garbage, money. Another girl would go in, abortion, head, feet, garbage, duh, money, 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 all day, all day, all day, all day, in a circle. It was a money-making, demonic, satanic place. At the end of the day, there's about 25 babies in pieces in a garbage can, in a biohazard bag. And I said to the nurse, what do we do with this bag? And she said, oh, with that garbage? Oh, okay, so in California, we can't just dump out that garbage because there's blood in there. And, you know, the, the garbage in the garbage cans in the back of the clinic, because can you imagine these women that walk out, walk out of this clinic and have abortions, they open that garbage can and they just see all these dead babies? Of course not. So there's a huge freezer right there. And biohazard comes in monthly, and they just kind of throw it out in the dumpsters. So just tie the bag up and put the, the date on it and just store it right there. And when I open that freezer up, because these bags are red, but they're, they're, they're clear, I open this freezer and I see these blocks of babies frozen from all the abortions that Planned Parenthood had just in that one clinic. And it was horrifying to work in that place. I would cry every single day. I worked about a month in that place, and every day I suffer, and I see these people go, are these people not suffering? What's wrong with these people? They're affected, they're numb. The last day that I worked at Planned Parenthood, I walked in, and there was this young girl, and her stomach was this big. And it was the first time I've ever seen the manager at Planned Parenthood so happy, the biggest smile on her face. She said, oh, hi, Patricia, good morning. You will be assisting the 16-year-old girl with her abortion after your lunch. She is six months pregnant with twins. And when I saw this girl look at me with a smile say, nice to meet you, I thought to myself, you have no idea what you're about to do. I could not see two siblings in a Petri dish in pieces. I felt like I was going to faint. I couldn't, I couldn't. And I ran out of Planned Parenthood and I never went back. So I was suffering post-abortion syndrome from my three abortions. Now can you imagine this bigger trauma on top of that? Working at Planned Parenthood, helping other mothers have an abortion. How my soul was. And I was lost after that. I started getting heavily into drugs. I met this, this young man that was just involved in drugs and I told him that I was just depressed. I never told him about my abortions. I never told anybody about working at Planned Parenthood. And he introduced me to cocaine because he told me that that helped him heal his heart. And I started using cocaine and it temporarily helped me. And I used so much cocaine that my nose would start to bleed. And I couldn't, I couldn't use it anymore. I couldn't snort it because I used so much of it because it helped. And he said, Patricia, your nose is damaged. How about trying methamphetamine? I'll teach you how to smoke it. So I started grabbing a crack pipe and I started smoking methamphetamine. And that would help me forget about my, my parents and my mom. And it would help me forget about how I was just trash. And it would help me forget about how I was a murderer, an assassin. And I started falling more into this black hole. I ended up on the streets for three years as a homeless methamphetamine crack addict with this boyfriend and nobody knew about me because I was a failure, because I dreamt of being successful, because I wanted to travel the world and be somebody big and I was a nobody. 
and I pulled all my hair out. I pulled everything out. I had no hair. And I lost so much weight from so much drugs. I looked like a, a, a lady that was 150 years old. I was bones. My body actually started to, to hover like this. And my bones would stick out of my back because I, I was using so much drugs. And I remember one day I looked in the mirror and I looked into my eyes and I can only see death. And I looked at myself and I thought, who are you? What happened to you? What happened to that little princess that was so loved when she was little by her family? The little princess that was a straight A student, the little princess that had such friends and she was popular. What, what are you? What happened? And I felt like a dead woman walking on the streets. And one day, I got into a fight with that drug addict boyfriend and he left me. He got into a car and he left. And I really thought that he'd come back for me. I thought that he loved me and he never came back for me. I remember the hours rolled and after the fourth hour, I realized I have nothing. I hit rock bottom. I have nobody. I don't have friends. I don't have my family and I don't have anything. And I started to weep like a little girl. And I thought, well, what's gonna become of my life? What's gonna happen to my life? And I remember as I was weeping for the first time in so many years, I felt the love of God the Father. I remember when I was little in my backyard and I used to write love letters to God the Father and I used to roll them up in a balloon and send them up to heaven. And I remember that I used to look up at the sky and I used to talk to him. And I hadn't looked up at the sky since then. I forgot about him. And then I looked up at the sky again after so many years. And I said, I don't know you, but I know you exist. And I don't have anything and you're the only thing I have right now. I don't have drugs, I don't have my boyfriend, I don't have my family. And I ruined my life. And I want to ask for your forgiveness. And I want to thank you because you gave me a beautiful family and you gave me so many blessings and I destroyed my life. And please forgive me for all that I've done. And I put myself in a fetal position and I started to weep, but I felt peace. And I felt a strong hug. And when I opened my eyes to see who was hugging me, in front of me, there was a young girl with blonde hair with a name tag that said Bonnie. And her eyes were blue, just like Jesus. And those blue eyes were full of mercy. And she said, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. I am a waitress at that restaurant right there. And I saw you crying. And I started to pray for you. And the Lord told me to come out here and tell you that even if your mother or father shall abandon you or forsake you, that he will always be with you until the end of time. And that he loves you and he forgives everything that you've done. And that young girl, she held me in her arms and she lifted me off my misery. And I felt as if it were Jesus lifted me up with so much dignity just as he did to all the women in the Bible. And that, my friends, is Jesus Christ, 
the key of the divine mercy. And I would like, please, that we applaud his divine mercy at this very moment. And that young girl said, I don't care where you live. If I have to drive 10 hours, if I have to drive eight hours, I'm taking you home. Thank God she takes me to my father's house. And I stood on my father's doorstep feeling like the biggest loser, like the trash, like I wasn't worth anything. And I remember I stood there and I had no hair and I was like this old skeleton. And I knocked on that door. And when he opened the door, I thought he was gonna get mad at me. When he opened the door, he said, there's no, nothing's wrong, everything's okay, I love you. I threw myself at his feet, I asked him to forgive me, and it was just like the prodigal son. He said, welcome home. And then my mother looked for me after that, and she took care of me, and when I went to my, my mother moved back, she moved to Sacramento from Mexico. Three years that I was lost, my mom was suffering, and she went home, she went back home to the Catholic Church, and she said, I've been on my knees praying for you for three years in front of the Blessed Sacrament. I've been going to daily Mass every single day, offering all the Eucharist, every single sacrifice I could for you to come home. Every rosary, every chaplet of the Divine Mercy is for you, Patricia. And God did this miracle for me. And that's why I say, mothers, don't ever give up. If you have a child that's lost, that's away from the Lord, that's in prison, that's in drugs, that's in darkness, God has your prayers in a special place in his heart. Mother's prayers are the most profound for God, and your prayers will be answered. If God did this miracle in my mother's life, he can easily do it in your children's lives. Don't ever give up. Mother's prayers are so special. And my mother started reading the Bible, and she says, I don't care what the world thinks of you. I don't care if you have no friends, if everybody thinks you're a drug addict and you're a loser. This is what God says about you. And you're the daughter of the Most High, and you're the princess of the King of Kings, and you're not worth your education because you were a straight-A student. You're not worth your career. You're not worthy because of all the friends you had. The only reason that you are worthy is because he shed the last drop of blood for you. Many kids don't know who they are. They don't know their identity. And I never told you who you were. That's why the devil took you and he dragged you across the world like he does with so many youth. He drags the youth into drugs, into pornography, into addictions because they don't know their identity. Your identity is the blood of Christ. And that's who you are, period. And then I started to heal going to confession and going to confession and taking the Eucharist. I never, thank God, we love psychologists. We love them. God uses them for his glory. But I never went to a psychologist to heal everything that I had. I couldn't forgive my abortions. I still felt like a murderer. I felt like I killed my three children and they ended up in a garbage and they don't live anymore. But when I went to this amazing retreat called Rachel's Vineyard, that's where I once again felt like a mother. And we have a clip that we want to show 
from a DVD that we have um, from my book, Transfigured, when I lived this beautiful experience. And I hear the screen, I'm not sure if the people over here could see, but it's an amazing clip. So I had this journey with God. I had my walk with God and I had the love of God in me and I started to know who he was. But I never ever thought about my abortions. I just didn't want to think about it. It's just so shameful. And I got invited to the Rachel's Vineyard Retreat for a post-abortion healing. And immediately I thought to myself, that's not for me. I am healed. I've gone to confession. I've gone to a lot of healing masses and I've gotten prayed over and I don't need that. I'm healed. I mean, I, I still, even a day or two before I had signed up and registered to go to retreat, I thought, I'm not gonna go. I'm not gonna go. Somehow, miraculously, I, I ended up there and I can tell you that I walked in on a Friday afternoon feeling so shameful and scared. And I did feel like an assassin. Deep, deep, deep down, I felt like, you know what, I had an abortion, I killed three children. And that's it. I didn't think about anything else but that. During that retreat, wow, the Lord transformed my heart. And it was such a gift to know that I am actually a mother, that I'm not a woman that just killed her three children and they do not exist and that's it, period. No, no, there's, there's such a gift in knowing that my children are still, they're alive because Lord is the Lord of life. He's, he, he came to win victory over death and my children are alive and that I'm a mother and that I will see them one day. You know, that's not the end of them. It didn't finish there. You know, there's still, there's still mercy. And I gave them a name and I gave them dignity and honor that weekend. My first daughter, her name is Mariana, Mariana in honor of the Virgin Mary. My second is my son and his name is Emmanuel in honor of Jesus. And the third is Rose in honor of the rosary. And I made them a promise that weekend since I ended their life and I didn't give them a chance to live here on earth and to repair all the damage that I've done to other people, to myself, to them that I would do everything in my will to defend life. And I would be the voice of those who have no voice. I went to Colombia for the first time and I spoke to thousands of youth about chastity and a couple of babies were saved on that, on that mission trip. Six months later, I went back and I got to see these women that were pregnant. And then this last time I went, which was about a month ago, I actually got to hold the babies. So the Lord actually let me live the process of the birth of these babies. It was, <laughs> it was, I mean, the first child that I held, I mean, I looked at that child and I thought, wow, everything I went through, everything, everything that happened in my life was worth this life. It was the most amazing experience. I thought to myself, you know, this child might one day be married and have children and grandchildren. And it's a whole generation that's saved. It's not just one child. I mean, you can save generations. And that's just, that's just amazing what God does. You know, Romans 8, 28. The Lord can take something so tragic and so awful and just use it for His glory.
Like John Paul II says, do not settle for mediocrity. Be extraordinary. I challenge you not to be a saint, but to be a great saint. A great saint. And that's why we're here today, to mark history, to make a change in this world. Just like Brian said, we can change this world one soul at a time. I thank you so much. I thank everybody that organized this event for having me here. I'm very, very grateful to be here. And I promise, as a sister in Christ, to always pray for each and every one of you and all your family members for the rest of my life. But I also ask that you please pray for my ministry. God bless you and let all the glory and all the applause be for the Almighty God. Thank you so much. out uh, my my life story it's transfigured and I can I can talk about what it has done for people I, it, it is like an injection of faith um, especially for people that have been involved in the pro-life ministry that just want to give up because you feel like you're alone in this battle you feel like you're like the only little voice in the desert and there's nobody fighting with you and you just want to give up and I've, I've you know a lot of people have told me that they want to be um, more involved in the pro-life movement um, it's really give them give them like this fire this fire that they just want to set ablaze the world, just like the scripture says. Um, it's healed many women um, that have had abortions. It's given a lot of people that have had no hope, hope. Um, it's healed a lot of youth. Also, um, you know, people that were away from the church, people that actually want to start going to mass. It's, it's done a lot of great things, and that's what it will do for many. And I think that many people can find a little part of their life in this book. 
because I tell it all. <laughs> I don't hold back. And it's, it's an explosion of healing also. Yeah, the Lord's good. It's an explosion of mercy. That's what it is. I know that one of you guys came up to me and said that you never cry at events and you felt like crying. Is that you? Yeah, I'm just, I'm kind of just always the tough one. And I was like, no, it's not hitting me. And then I saw your testimony video and it just comes to show like how good and how all powerful God is. And no matter what, he's always there to forgive you. So, yeah. So the first time I heard your testimony was on ESNE. It was through ESNE El Sembrador. Yeah. I think it was El Congreso Mujeres. Oh. And it was in Spanish. And we were listening through the TV. Like me and my parents were having breakfast. And we were just, I was, he I was hearing what you were saying. Like we, I usually don't listen to what TV has to say. <laughs> and I was just like, what? Are you, are you serious? Is this, it's just, yeah, like you said, like his mercy like you see his mercy really shine through that brokenness and like how he's able to heal physical and spiritual wounds. It's just so, so overwhelming. And um, but like, I don't know, it's just so beautiful to even see you here and just like walk with so much grace and like confidence through, through him. It's just so empowering. I know that you guys are uh, speaking about that you were inspired by my talk, but I'm actually super inspired. And it gives me hope to see young people like yourselves at these events. And I think, I, like I said, I wish that I would have known what you, what you know now. I wish that I could have been just like yourselves coming to these events because I think my life would have been different. And I think that's amazing that you guys are here on a weekend because it shows the love that you guys have for, for the Lord. The, the bit the heart the bit that hit me the hardest was you talking about you actually watching an abortion because prior I was pro-choice because that's how the culture raised us but when I heard that they have a child die the way they kill the baby I was like that's not right that's a human life you know and when your testimony talked about how it was a young girl at 16 and it's just stabbing her wound and it just hurts that that happens every day and it's like something you have to pray for that there's that conversion for them too yeah um so i cried during your whole talk <laughs> um and it hit me in a way that i never thought anything would hit me Pro-life is so important. Like, we are advocates for that and to be reminded of that. Because I forget, in all honesty, I forget sometimes that that's actually one of our callings is to be able to stand for the voiceless. And it just put me on super on fire because um, I also do ministry work at Sacramento Newman and we have a social justice and then they want to do pro-life and it's just like I want to start getting involved in that ministry more now. I'm kind of shaking because I'm like nervous but <laughs> it just it moves me and it warms my heart because you are so brave and so courageous that God gave you that grace and his mercy to be able to speak about this to like hundreds and hundreds of people and it like transforms people's lives because I know for a fact that mine has like mine is like completely changed. But yeah, one of the things that really stood out to me was when you talked about with like chastity as well. And so like I, I practice safe sex as well. So it's like I can kind of relate to you on that. And it's like all I was told growing up is just, oh, be safe or make sure you wrap it up or make sure you're taken care of. Um, and it actually took me a very 
heartbreaking experience to understand like there's more to this than just being safe. Um, and like ever since then, I've been working my way to be more chase, and it's it's difficult, yes, but <laughs> but it's something that I was wondering if you had any feedback for, or any like I guess you could say tips or anything like can kind of help with that. So chastity is not easy, um, and sometimes we get discouraged. God doesn't focus so much on our sin. We're gonna fall. We always fall. We sin about seven times a day. He focuses on our struggle. Chastity is possible. It's completely possible with the sacraments, with the Eucharist. That's what gives us strength. So people see chastity as a negative, as a no. Like they, it's like a no-no. But chastity is actually a yes. It's actually a yes to true love. It's actually a yes to freedom. It's yes to peace. It's yes to happiness. Like I could tell you from my experience, when I wasn't practicing chastity, every month I was worried, oh my gosh, am I pregnant? Am I pregnant? Um, do I have an STD? Okay, wait a minute. My boyfriend just broke up with me. Now he just slept with that other girl over there. And I, I just slept with them like two months ago. What, what's going on? It's like heartbreak after heartbreak. And I was just falling into wound after wound after wound. So when they tell you to be safe and to protect yourself, they never talk about the heart. You always end up with a broken heart every time you have, you know, any type of intimacy before, before marriage. So chastity is actually... This is what chastity is. When you see the person you love and you say, I love you so much that I want your soul to go to heaven. I'm going to take care of your soul. That's how much I want you to be a saint. And it's that person telling you the same thing back. I love you so much that I want you to go to heaven. I want you to become a saint. That's true love. It's, it's, it's wanting the best for the other person. So chastity is a yes to true deep love in Christ. That's how I see it. And, and the, the more you get close to the sacraments, to prayer, that, that sin's going to debilitate. It's going to be easier for you. Chastity is like a sport. If you want to become the best soccer player, what are you going to do? You're going to train for it, right? You're going to practice. A lot of soccer players, they miss the ball. They miss the, the, the goal. They fall. But they get back up. And they keep training, right, to become the best athlete. And that's what chastity is. So this... Um, is St. Philomena's devotion. It's a sacramental. It's, it's so it, there's a promise behind this that it helps you with temptations, you know, uh, against purity. Like if, if there's purity, they're trying to, the devil's trying to tempt you with your purity, she helps you. So it's a promise of, of, of trying to be pure. So I, I have her first class relic at home. I have her bone and I touched it to her bone. So this comes from Italy, from where she's from, like where her body is at. So I, I never take this off. I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna give you my, I'm gonna give you my chastity. Okay, now I gotta try extra. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here, I'll hold that for yeah. you. She's, she's um, super special. I went to confession one time and he told me um, the fact that I'm struggling to be more pure is a sense of like that mindset of trying to be better. Because in the past, I would just give into it and not worry about like... God is pleased with your struggle. Just say, help me. Just tell him to help you. Don't, even, don't make promises to God. Just say, help me. But he, he's delighted in the struggle. He's so delighted when he sees you get up. That's why confession is so amazing. He knew we were going to mess up all the time. That's why he gave us confession. Yeah. Oh, such a beautiful vibe. <laughs>